So I think we can get started. Um, we have, uh, uh, again, our illustrious panel with us uh, for, uh, for this discussion. And as always, uh, we, we've get, we get together ahead of time for a few minutes and talk about uh, what the issues are. And, and obviously, it always changes every, every time we do these. Uh, there's yet something, uh, something new. Uh, so I'll uh, do some more introductions in a second, but uh, welcome back uh, in the order on my screen, at least Peter Chin Hong, uh, Carlos El Rio and Bonnie Maldonado. Uh, and if I could, uh, Jose, see the next slide. I think we have another slide. So um, it's not me frozen um, <laughs> uh, today. This is uh, earlier in the pandemic. This is from June uh, of 2020. Uh, when uh, I did my first of these dialogues, this is with George Rutherford, um, uh, UCSF epidemiologist, pediatric ID person, uh, who uh, at the time was making the remarkable statement that uh, we should all be wearing masks, not just in patient care uh, settings. Uh, so at the time, I think uh, pretty uh, uh, pretty dramatic, uh, but uh, but uh, he was right. And in, in my background, in this one, you can see my yellow cat Marley, who joined us for that dialogue. I try to keep him away from these these days. Can I go back to the title slide there, uh, Jose? Good. Okay. Uh, so uh, we're going to talk about viruses. I think we should just kind of call this virus dialogue because it's. Uh, it's been the case that we've wandered uh, with the latest uh, virus of the of the week, um, but I don't think we could design a panel better than uh, than we have today. Um, uh, I'll, I'll let them introduce themselves, but I, I think you know in, in, in every case uh, these guys are uh, people are really real experts um, and. Uh, maybe uh, call out, especially Bonnie uh, Maldonado, who was on the news hour last night, my source of all information. Uh, but but uh, every one of the people that, that are going to be here today, um, as, as you all know, if you've been part of these dialogues before, are really international experts. And so uh, we're going to try to wander around with the, with the questions, uh, but we'll, we'll try to uh, save uh, room for uh, questions from the, from the participants. You can do that uh, on your Q&A uh, function. I'll try to watch those as, as we have time. Um, we usually kind of run out of time, but uh, let's let's uh, introduce the panelists, starting with Peter. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Peter Chinhong. I'm an infectious disease doctor at UCSF and uh, do some clinical trials with investigational drugs uh, with COVID uh, during the pandemic, but also most recently have been uh, uh, administering uh, tecovirumat uh, for monkeypox. Great, great. We'll talk about that. Uh, Carlos. Yes. Hi, Paul. Uh, hi, everybody. Carlos Del Rio from Emory University and, uh, you know, longtime HIV uh, investigator and clinician. And now, you know, later, lately uh, COVID and now also monkeypox. So we have gone from, you know, pandemic to pandemic to pandemic. I tell people this is my my fourth pandemic in my lifetime as an infectious physician, because there was also, uh, you know, influenza in 2009. So, fourth pandemic of my of my life as an infectious disease physician. 
Great. Yeah, I think we've all felt the same way. I, I, I thought I would just have kind of one with HIV, but uh, now we find ourselves in the middle of several simultaneously. Bonnie, uh, Yvonne Maldonado, t tell us who you yeah, are. Yeah, hi, I'm a, a, I'm a pediatric infectious disease epidemiologist at Stanford, and um, I started my career working on polio eradication and prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV. Um, and of course, over the years, we've uh, pivoted quite a bit to other vaccine-preventable diseases, uh, including COVID and now monkeypox. Uh, uh, super, super. Um, so I want to thank uh, the IAS, International Antiviral Society USA, um, in advance. I sometimes forget at the end of the program, but Donna Jacobson, who's uh, listening in, uh, and Jose Francisco, who has been just great at, at, at getting us all organized and keeping us on, on schedule. So uh, let's, let's jump into it. And we, we could hit any one of these viruses, but let's start with COVID. That's the, uh, the driver for, for these dialogues. Um, in terms of uh, new developments, things that we're hearing about, I think maybe let's start talking about uh, some of the newer uh, boosters that are uh, starting with Pfizer, probably soon Moderna. Who wants to who wants to jump into uh, talking about uh, COVID boosters? Well, I can say something about yep. pediatrics. We just saw data today on the uh, secondary outcomes of the uh, under the six months to four year olds, and the efficacy looked like it was about seventy three percent preventing symptomatic infection. Um, based on the trials that were done uh, earlier uh, this year. And uh, the work in uh, overall has been to provide uh, variant um, bivalent boosters in the fall. I think there's um, uh, Omicron and Delta BA4, BA5 that are in the works. And just for all of you to know that BA4 and BA5 share the same antigenic spike protein makeup. So when you get one, you get them both. Um, and those are in the works and we understand those will be coming in a few weeks. I think they say September. I know Pfizer um, and Moderna have both been working on those. And there are uh, studies in, uh, for the uh, younger ages as well that are in uh, play right now that probably won't be done by September, but hopefully will be able to have boosters uh, for people under 17 before the end of the fall. So if you hear about one versus another of, of these, uh, does it really make any difference? Maybe Carlos, uh, you want to toss that around? Well, I, think, I, I, I think one of the most interesting things that is happening, Paul, for boosters in this fall is that we're beginning to see governments take a different approach. In the UK, they just approved a booster for this fall that targets both the original strain of the virus as well as the original Omicron variant, you know, the BA1 in the so-called bivalent vaccine and Moderna is gonna produce that vaccine. But the FDA rejected that BA1 bivalent booster last spring. And instead the FDA told the vaccine companies to make uh, a bivalent vaccine that contained the dominant Omicron subvariants, the BA4, BA5, which is what's circulating right now. Uh, so, so we're going to see different boosters used this fall in uh, across the Atlantic, and I think that's going to be real interesting. And, and I honestly don't know what's going to be the outcome of this. You know, the BA, the B, the, the, the FDA is is relying on on neutralization and immunogenicity data uh, derived from uh, from mouse data, 
there is very little data on, on, on humans and to make this, this leap of faith. So it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. And I think it's gonna be, uh, you know, we don't know if BA4 or 5 is gonna be circulating in the fall. So it's gonna be a, a leap of faith, quite frankly. But likely the case that even if it's not the dominant one circulating in the fall, that the BA4 or 5 vaccine would have some value still? Is that a good I mean, that's what, that's what the FDA said. And, and well, that's and what if we you all look hope, at the right? data, though, so far, we've been using the ancestral strain uh, for this whole time, and we still have pretty good efficacy, at least against severe disease and hospitalization. So, you know, I, I agree with Carlos. We don't know whether the BA4 or 5 will give us the same broad protection and whether we've already got prime T cells to the other. Uh, earlier variants and the ancestral strain, whether that'll actually kick in to provide support, uh, a protection against whatever whatever's coming this fall. And that's why I think uh, for the rollout of B four five boosters, that they will still rely on the foundation as the first two shots. So they're not expecting to start from zero for people who are unvaccinated with the booster shot. And probably speaking to the what you said, bon Bonnie. Uh, lack of real experience with this shot as a primary series, but rather, as a spirit suggests, a booster. Right. So, so Bonnie, uh, you mentioned, I think, uh, early on today uh, that these vaccines, and I think you were talking especially about kids, are, you know, really quite effective at preventing serious disease. And yet, and this is something I, I want to definitely get into when we talk about other vaccines today, but um, and yet, not everyone, not every kid has been in, uh, inoculated. Um, and I know everyone has heard and talked a lot about the vaccine uh, issues, but uh, let's begin that and just tell us what your initial thoughts are, especially with respect to, to COVID and where we are with, with getting people vaccinated. And, and the other panelists can certainly jump in because this is an issue for adults as well as kids. Yeah, it's a broad issue, obviously. At this yeah. point, we've only seen 1% uh, of kids six months to five years of age vaccinated, uh, even 1%. though these vaccines, 1%. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, I'm sorry, 6%, a million, a million. All right, well, kids, <laughs> still, sorry about that. Still low, right. 6%, uh, still pretty low. But, um, you know, we knew uh, from the get-go that we were not going to see a lot of response uh, in children. And I think part of it is, you know, this is what we battle as pediatricians. You know, a disease may not be highly prevalent, but it's still preventable and it can still cause serious outcomes. And we're constantly reminding people that a preventable death and a preventable hospitalization is important. And what happened here, of course, is that COVID uh, severity was really increasing as age went up. And so we noticed that for five to seven, for 12 to 17 year olds, the vaccination rate is around 60, 70%. For five to 11 year olds, it's about 30%. And now for the little ones, it's about 6%. So as you see the people thinking that these kids are not gonna be affected, you see less uptake. The problem is it doesn't mean zero uptake. We actually admitted four kids in the hospital today. So, you know, they're, and they're symptomatic. So it's not like we're not seeing symptoms. And um, it's just that the prevalence is not as high as, you know, and I think people have gotten used to this disease now too. 
So I, I see a, a question in the in the Q and A. And by the way, uh, to the people that joined us somewhat late, uh, you can you can post your questions. I'll I'll try to watch for them, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. But there's a COVID question. Um, for those that received the COVID second boosters, what's the minimum separation needed between second booster and the bivalent that's going to be coming out in the fall? Is there, um, what do we know about how long uh, you should wait and how long you should uh, jump in with the next uh, booster? Bonnie, Bonnie, do you want to take that? Yeah, at this point, um, the it depends on whether you're immunocompromised or not, but I think in general for most populations, the, the waiting time is about five months um, and for immunocompromised, three months. But uh, well, I think it, it's safe to say we won't. Most people will have already reached three to five months by the time these vaccines are out. Um, and I think the idea really is, again, as Carlos mentioned, following neutralizing antibody. We don't have any idea about T cells really in a large population-based way. But if you look at antibody levels, they do seem to drop off fairly quickly. Um, especially with the more recent variants. So uh, probably about five months, but we, we don't know what FDA will say in the fall when the when the um, boosters pop up. You know, right. the other issue, the other issue we need to remember is that really, the, you know, we need to go back and, and remember the, the so-called antigenic sin, right? The version of the virus that you were first exposed to likely determines how you respond to later variants and how well vaccines work later on. And I think it's going to be interesting because a lot of people have gotten infected in the last couple of months. And when you got infected and what you got infected with likely is going to determine what you're going to, how you're going to respond to the booster you receive. So I don't think the response is going to be necessarily the same, depending on and whether you got infected or not recently and what the, what that, uh, the, the so-called antigenic sin happens to be. So uh, one, one issue that uh, I want to talk about a little bit um, I think the experience here, and, and certainly Carlos can, uh, or, or any of you can can talk about it, but I think we're seeing relatively few uh, really sick people, relatively few fatal cases of, of COVID. Um, and yet we hear about all these, you know, big public personas, uh, uh, Joe Biden most recently, who get infected, who go into, you know, um, some isolation, come back, don't ever seem to get really sick. We, I don't think we've seen a, a public person get really sick and die for, for quite a while now. Is this, is it over? Or is, is the serious nature of COVID over? And one of the things that we talked about in our panel prep the other day was, is this really kind of getting to be like the flu? Uh, how should be pe people be thinking about this uh, what do we do in terms of keeping it on the uh, on the consciousness? Uh, Peter, do you want to uh, start talking about that? Yeah. So I th when I think about it fading into the background, I think about two things. One is how much is it costing society still? And I think we've been become numb to numbers, but I'm just pulling out my iPhone now. And if we say conservatively 450 people a day is still dying in the U.S., that's 165,000 people a year. And the worst flu season is like 60,000 deaths or 30,000 in a regular flu season. So it's kind of shocking to me still that we're still seeing so many number of deaths. The second thing that I would love before I sort of relegate it to the background is predictability. And like, you know, like today, Google, I was telling the panel before we jumped on, that's the largest uh, workplace outbreak in California, you know, 300 people almost. So like 300 people taken out of the workforce uh, all of a sudden, that's not really conducive to 
regular life. So we're getting there and suddenly people are coming back to normal, but it's suddenly far from what I consider to be normal and background. The, the sort of tragedy is we have a lot of tools to prevent those 165,000 people from dying, but people are not always taking advantage of the tools, even for unvaccinated folks with all these therapies to keep them away from the hospital. You know, nope. the other issue I think that we keep talking about, and there are more and more data showing up, is what are the long-term impacts of infection, whether or not you're symptomatic. And we're seeing, you know, the risk is not super high, but there's definitely a risk of long-term inflammatory, cardio cardiovascular, and other effects on pediatric and adult populations. Now, the numbers we don't know yet may not be, may not reach five or 10%, but that's still a lot of people if everyone gets infected and that they, and the good studies that have been done um, with using unvaccinated controls um, have shown that the background rate of these symptoms is really higher um, or vaccinated controls who are not infected is higher for people who have been infected and, and strikingly even for asymptomatic individuals. So um, we don't know what this virus can do to, to our, um, our you know overall systemic response in the long term yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and one one other point before I, uh, sure, I, sure. I thought that was wild that in the last um few days uh lancet psychiatry came out with a study that sure it has limitations because it's observational but again it speaks to bonnie's point of these long-term effects specifically around neurological disease and um sure uh you know in two months i think a lot of the this is like a million people and uh looking at a million people, including controls of non-COVID uh, respiratory disease. Um, two months, the anxiety and depression goes away, but in two years, you still have a background rate of more than one one and a half percent in terms of dementia and even seizures in kids. Uh, sure, it's very, very small, but if you multiply it by the amount of people getting infected, it's, it's, it's very uh, significant. Yeah, so uh, really good discussion. So uh, questions now in the in the in the Q and A, uh, and we've talked about this as a panel before. But uh, the issue of rebound. Let's talk about uh, COVID treatment rebound because we've we've heard that many people, I think, including President Biden, uh, took Paxlovid, uh, had a had a had a at least an antigenic rebound. Um, what do we know about uh, about that? And is it time to be thinking about COVID rebound instead of uh, instead of treatment per se? Um, who wants to jump into into that question? Well, I'll, I'll start. Let me just say that yeah, I think the term we need to use is COVID rebound because we know that rebound even occurs if you don't take uh, treatment in people that just have an infection. About five percent of them actually have a rebound. In other words, they get better and then they 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 the virus or the symptoms come back. But in those that virus or symptoms come back, they rarely have uh, very high viral loads to, that make them actually infectious. I think we see rebound also with, with, uh, with antivirals and we also see them with monoclonals. So you can see it in almost any treatment. But at the end of the day, I think the data on treatments is, is really good. And I think we need to get people to realize, I hear so many people saying, well, I'm not gonna get treated because I'm gonna get rebound. It's, it, it really doesn't make any sense because the data is, is treatment still very effective. We have to say, yes, you know, Biden had, uh, had COVID and he did fine, but he got treated also. I mean, let's not forget, this is not 
when you compare Biden versus Trump when they got COVID, yeah, exactly. about the same age, think about the clinical course, think about how yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. And the difference is, you know, the difference is one was vaccinated, one wasn't because Trump was before vaccines were available. You know, Trump got a monoclonal, and I think that was clearly life-saving for him, but he also got other therapies, including remdesivir, steroids, and other eight drugs. He was critic, he was ill, not critically ill, but he was ill enough. He was hypoxic, he was in the hospital and Bethesda Naval. You know, Biden continued being at, at the White House. He continued working, he was taking Paxlovid, and he did fine. So I think you you clearly see how vaccines and therapeutics have significantly altered the course of this infection. Do any sense, Carlos, of whether somebody, and this is a question that was in the QA. Uh, is the is the treatment rebound uh, from uh, COVID uh, different in people who have been previously vaccinated? Does that decrease the frequency or severity? I don't think anybody knows. I mean, the problem with with treatments, Paxlovid, uh, Beptolizumab, you know, Molnupiravir, the treatments we have available, is they were all tested and they were all approved based on data on on unvaccinated individuals. We really have no clinical trial data or no really good data on what happens when you give it, you give it in vaccinated individuals. There are some studies, there are some publications now on vaccinated individuals, primarily with Paxlovid from uh, Kaiser and from uh, uh, from my clinic and other places, and suggest that maybe about 10% of people who are vaccinated get the, the rebound. Uh, but again, we may be, you know, it may be biased, maybe totally an ascertainable well, bias. We really and, need better data. And this week, the FDA did ask um, the company, asked Pfizer to do a 10-day trial. Um, surprise, they haven't done it already, but they asked them to do a 10-day trial. It'd be really interesting to address Carlos's question. I don't think they can find any unvaccinated patients anymore, but it would be really nice to be able to have those data and see what 10 days does to um, mitigate some of that rebound effect. So, yeah, uh, I mean, no, nobody really knows if six days of therapy is, is what you need to right. take, right? I mean, got it, got it. And that was one of the questions that came up in the Q&A too. Uh, let's, uh, let's shift because the question of treatment is coming up for another virus that's been in the news. Um, we've all heard monkeypox or mpox. Uh, uh, Peter, uh, you've been very involved in this. I know that so has Carlos and Bonnie, but uh, do you want to start talking about where we are with, uh, with that infection? Um, and then we can get into treatment as well as uh, as well as vaccines. Yeah, so uh, people may know that there's an antiviral drug called tecovirumab. It's um, it's uh, FDA approved for smallpox in 2019, but not FDA approved for mpox. So we are um, using it under expanded access IND, which means that you need to inform use uh, administer informed consent and see the patients at at least two other intervals, although CDC is making it easier. Uh, right now, we're in the similar strategy as the early days of remdesivir, where we're treating uh, the sickest people with antivirals, even though, you know, conceptually speaking, every antiviral works the best the earlier you treat it. But that's really in the absence of a lot of clinical data. There's good animal studies, there's good safety data. Uh, there are case reports, and in my own experience, sure, I'm biased by being a clinician in that way. My clinician hat sees a big effect. My investigator hat says, we don't know because I don't have a control. Um, so we're seeing the first movement towards that. A lot of people are planning studies, but today, actually, the UK announced the same people did recover, and they looked at the use of steroids. Uh, they're 
first randomized control study is uh, has been announced today in the UK, where they're going to look at um, people who are less severely ill, and they're going to randomize them, including kids, uh, immunocompromised, etc. 500 people, and I think that will really help us feel better about using this medicine. Although I think from a compassionate use, we are using it in uh, the sickest patients. We have a lot of drugs in this national stockpile, like uh, 2 million courses, uh, and might be easier to upscale. And I think part of the motivation for the UK is that we don't have enough vaccines. Uh, if we get some better data that assures of course, we'd feel better we can mass manufacture these drugs and use it as a as a in between if needed uh, as vaccines get uh, wrapped up. Great, um, Carlos. Uh, we're we're hearing a lot about uh, MPOX in the in the southeast. What's been your experience at Emory? Uh, who's getting uh, the infection, and how are they coming to your uh, to your attention? So the first thing to say is that like in any other infection that we've dealt with, you know, whether it's COVID or now monkeypox or HIV, we're seeing uh, enormous health inequities. Uh, the, the number of African-Americans that are getting are being the patients we diagnose with this infection as a, in the country as a whole is in the 60 percent and down in, in, in Atlanta, for example, it's more like 80 percent of our patients are African-Americans. The other thing we see is that a, a large percentage of them, no matter which series you look at, Globally, 40 to 60% of individuals are people living with HIV. Uh, many of them virally suppressed, and those not living with HIV are people taking uh, PrEP, antiretrovirals, for prevention. So they haven't, they've been not worrying really about, you know, STIs because they're, they're taking, you know, we, we have seen how people in PrEP high, a higher rate of STDs just because they get diagnosed. So I think we're seeing a, a change in the, in the epidemiology of, of, of the disease, and it's being driven by sexual networks, it's being driven by you know, sexual behavior, you know, on their PrEP, but it's also being driven by health inequities. And I think we really need to emphasize this because I have been asking CDC and others, we really need to know who's getting vaccinated. We need a health equity dashboard that allows us to see this is the percent of people that are getting vaccinated. And so far, I haven't seen anything like that. And we need to be sure that the people getting vaccinated and the people getting access to, to therapies, like Peter mentioned, are actually, you know, those that are also most severely impacted. My concern is that many, you know, Many gay men who are monogamous and in 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 quite quite frankly low risk situations are actually getting vaccinated ahead of people that actually need it the most. Yeah, so um, I, obviously this does remind us a lot of the of what the issues that we faced in the earlier HIV epidemic uh, as as well. Uh, uh, Carlos, is there is there a sense that the disease course is different in people with HIV infection or co-infection? Uh, or do you see so many co-infections that you can't really tell? You can't really tell, I, I think. You know, people with HIV that we've seen, uh, most of the people with HIV that we're seeing with, with monkeypox are actually an antiretroviral therapy and were suppressed, so really that's not an issue. We've seen a couple people with low CD4 counts who are not suppressed, and they tend to do pretty badly. They tend to have very severe disease. So again, at this point in time, it's anecdotally, but it's not surprising that they will have more severe disease. I think one thing to be said about vaccines also is that people think that you know, you get your shot of vaccine and you're protected. Now you can go to your rave or you can go to a party and you're not going to get monkeypox. And we need to remind people that, you know, first of all, protection requires, you know, to start developing some immunity requires about, about you know, two weeks. And really the full protection happens after you get the second dose of the Janus vaccine. And that's two weeks after the second dose. 
So the reality is we're seeing a lot of people saying, well, I know somebody who got vaccinated and they got monkeypox, so the vaccine doesn't work. Well, we need to, again, educate people about exactly what a vaccine does. It's not a vaccine. It's not an immediate therapy. It's going to take time for a immune system to respond and to actually protect you. So education about how the vaccines will help us prevent this outbreak, I think, is going to be really important as well. So um, one of the questions that's coming coming up is about uh, treatment with the T-pox. Um, and uh, for any of the panelists, but the question is kind of, is there a role for shorter courses of, of treatment? Uh, what do we know about the duration of treatment? Do, do some people that respond really well, uh, can they get away with a well, short let's, let's just, course? Let's just, let's just start by saying, Paul, that we have zero data from clinical trials <laughs> on, on, treating, on treating monkeypox. The data, monkeypox was approved for the treatment of smallpox based on, on a very obscure FDA mechanism called the animal rule. In other words, when the disease doesn't exist or it's too severe to do a clinical trial, smallpox doesn't exist when that happened. You can do studies in animals and approve the drug that way. But we have no data on, on monkeypox. And, and therefore, all we're doing right now is quite frankly, you know, speculating as we talk about efficacy and as we talk about when to use it. We and the other issue there around the, uh, the treatment is uh, because the data was generated really based on the animal rule for smallpox, we're fortunate that it appears to work here with monkeypox. We don't have real efficacy data. And more importantly, when we, when we talk about, people are now talking about uh, prophylactic therapy or shortened courses. And this reminds me a lot of our antimicrobial or stewardship population uh, issues. And, and the question then is, if you look at uh, in vitro, you can actually generate uh, monkeypox, you can actually generate antiviral um, resistance in these in this virus in particular, and it's a single point mutation. So it's a SNP, not, not, I don't know how hard it is to generate it, but it's been easily done in the laboratory. And the problem is this is the only antiviral we have right now for orthopox viruses like this. So um, trying to finish full courses and not doing pre-exposure. First of all, we don't even know if pre-exposure would work. The mechanism of action of this antiviral appears to be a prevention of cell-to-cell -cell spread, not prevention of viral replication. So we don't really understand any of that to Carlos's point. So I would worry about taking it um, out any further than what we're doing right now. And, and so, again, that's why you know the ACTG is about to conduct a randomized clinical trial. You know, there's a, it's a clinical trial being conducted in, in in Africa by the NIH, clinical trials being conducted in Canada and in Europe, we have to get data from clinical trials to really know the role of this of this agent. And but we have to also say that uh, uh, that emphasize what Monica, what, what what Bonnie said uh, is that the concern that I myself and others have is that this drug has a very very low uh, barrier for resistance, right? This is, this is a drug that, as Bonnie said, inhibits a, a protein uh, that, is, that is important in, in the release of the virus, in, in the virus being released from the cells. The, uh, it's an inhibitor of the orthopox virus, VP37 envelope wrapping protein. And this is one mutation in that that leads to resistance. So there's a very low barrier of resistance. And those of us working in HIV know what low barrier of resistance means. It means rapid developing of resistance. You know, we saw that, for example, you know, the M184 mutation with 3TC right, takes right, one right. mutation and you lose a drug. So we need to we need to really be aware that of this concerns. And, and I worry that we're going to start using the drug 
without having all the clinical data that we need. So I'm, I think I'm, it's, I think I'm it's worth you know, there's, there's a question that I saw here that I think is worth answering is whether whether you should get you know if you if you had monkeypox and you were treated, do you still get the the, the monkeypox vaccine? You know, a lot of people think the natural that infection with with monkeypox is sufficient to give you immunity. So I think that this person who already had had monkeypox doesn't necessarily need a vaccine because they've already been protected. So let's uh, let's shift the gears a little bit about from treatment um, back uh, earlier in the in the whole monkeypox uh, story. In the in the earliest outbreak, we started to hear about cases of. People a lot of lot a lot in MSM right from the start, but where the where the uh, theoretical exposure was kind of close skin to skin contact. We heard about raves and people kind of rubbing up against each other, and I I think that was for a, for a while at least the dominant thought about transmission. Uh, who wants to talk? Uh, maybe uh, Peter about what do we know about the transmission of of MPOX? Is is it still skin to skin contact or is it something? newer so it's still primarily considered skin to skin although there is increasing uh, noise about the contribution of fluids bodily fluids and sexual activity itself and the thought behind that is that it just seems so odd that it's staying in this network uh, even after being here for months the idea that anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of people have a another or concomitant sexually transmitted infection, um, you know, all, and the fact you can find it. But of course, I think our framework from skin to skin comes from our historical understanding of how people got in in previous outbreaks from animals or preparation of food. And from the 2003 prairie dog outbreaks where the amount of disease you got was based on how much the, how agitated your prairie dog was and how, how you clean the cage. So, I think, you know, keeping an open mind, the reason why people are bringing this point up is not be because they are being academic and ivory tower-like, it's really leads to how you message people about protecting yourself before you get the vaccine. And that's a whole topic in itself, but so skin to skin slash bodily fluids, but very little fomite surface uh, fabric, unless you're in a household. And there's one credible report of a, uh, fabric associated uh, transmission, which was in a healthcare worker in the UK who was changing the sheets of a MPOX patient before they knew the patient was infected and the scabs flew in the air and then the healthcare worker got uh, infected that way. And then of course, everyone's talking about that um, patient who was reported, um, you know, going to the rave and wasn't sexually active, but that's really the exception. That's why it's a case report rather than the rule. Uh, so that's how I think about it. I think, Bonnie, there have been 10 kids so far in the US uh, yeah. infected. The most recent one was in New York. And then um, not a lot of people thinking. And in the UK, when they did, when they look at the test positive rate, it's interesting when you look at household contacts and when they did all their kids, 0.6% positivity rate, which as opposed to 50%. Uh, so that's kind of where we are with transmission. Another yeah. last spoil is yeah, yeah. the dog owner, the owners of the dog uh, had monkeypox or mpox in France. The greyhound slept with them in the same bed and got infected 12 days later. So uh, Bonnie, um, uh, 
talk about a little bit about MPOX and kids. What what have you seen? What have you heard? What what should we be thinking about? Well, we yeah, we haven't we've heard that there was one case in California. We still don't know where that child was. And there are a total of 10 cases in um the federal um agencies have not really been going into any details. And it turns out that it's uh, may, some of those 10 may actually be false positives. We don't know how many. And today or yesterday, and I can't remember, uh, there was guidance around um, retesting people who don't fall within the normal uh, case definition if they're positive, because if they have, especially if they have a high CT value to retest because there has been evidence of false positives. So, Again, we think that the risk is low for people outside of that um, intense uh, contact. Um, and it reminds me a bit of that early study um, looking at aerosol transmission of COVID where they did this really interesting uh, swabbing of a, a intensive care room and a hallway of a patient with COVID. And they were able to identify by PCR virus from many, many surfaces, but they weren't able ever to cultivate it. And I remember following up with the group that did the study because I asked them what happened with the tissue culture data. And they said, well, we'll get back to you. And I kept calling back. They never actually were able to grow the virus. So the, you know, this is very similar. We don't, we're not seeing that widespread transmission. I do think that children or pregnant women in particular who live in, or pregnant people who live in homes where there is, um, there are um, a gay or bisexual men who have sex with men, we should really, I think, be careful about exposure if somebody is symptomatic, but otherwise I would really not be concerned. I think the ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Prevent, uh, Pandemic uh, uh, Prevention and Responses has talked about the major group that she wants to have vaccinated as a priority is the 1.6 million MSM in the U.S. And that we think would be probably the most reasonable thing to do given the supply of vaccine that we have at this point and the highest risk population, not only for their own networks, but for spread into other communities. So no need to uh, keep your mail on your porch for uh, 24 hours, <laughs> the way we talked about it. Oh my, don't even want to think about those days. With COVID. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the things I've noticed uh, recently is uh, uh, more talk about uh, some of the public health measures with, with MPOX where uh, there have been some attempts at case contact finding, um, and some uh, uh, places have said we can't do it anymore. Apparently, people are just not uh, not are not willing to give their uh, their contacts, and it reminds us, of course, of some of the issues in the early HIV epidemic. Um, uh, thoughts about that, and and whether uh, uh, whether there's a, any other approach to uh, to prevention that we should be thinking about. Well, you know, I think it's really important to think about, about a harm reduction approach, right? We really need to think about, first of all, what Bonnie was mentioning. I worry about discrimination. I worry about stigma. Uh, I worry about somebody, you know, if somebody has not come out as an MSM and all of a sudden calls work and they do, he has to report that he's going to be out for the next four weeks. Well, what do you have? Well, I can't tell you what I know. If you're out for four weeks, it must be monkeypox. All of a sudden, that person is outed, not only having an infection, but also as being an MSM. And, and, and that could potentially have consequences for that individual, not necessarily in our country, but in many other places it could. In some countries in Africa, it could land you in jail as criminals. So, so I do worry about stigma. I do worry about discrimination. I do worry, I mean, you know, MSMs could be the major driver of the epidemic that we're seeing in Nigeria. We just don't know because 
you know, again, this, this is not very open in, in many African countries. So we really need to understand that a lot more. So I worry about stigma and discrimination. I also worry about, about you know, making sure that we keep, again, I said it before, equity at the front line, right? How do we ensure, and not only is equity in our racial and ethnic equity in the, in this, in the US, but you know, Africa has had monkeypox for years. They are getting zero vaccines, they're getting zero treatments. We, we cannot afford that. Once again, we're making the same mistake we made with COVID and we're doing it over and over again, which is we keep hoarding everything our way and we forget about the rest of the world. Right. And more importantly, we could have paid attention to monkeypox in Africa a long time ago, and we could have had clinical trials and data on both the vaccines and the treatments that we could have applied today, but we chose to ignore it. We chose to say that's not our problem. And now guess what? It is our problem. So, so I think we need, those are the things that I really want to, in this epidemic, you know, HIV taught us the importance of, of a global approach. COVID, I think, is trying to teach us a global approach because we really haven't done it in a good way. And again, monkeypox is, is looking more like COVID than it did like HIV. So I, I do want to see us have more of a global equity approach when we confront this global pandemic. So it's a it's a good lead. And so I, I'm sitting uh, during this dialogue and I'm looking at the at the people that are participating in the in as, as the audience. And we have a who's who of people that have been very involved in in uh, all aspects of infectious disease. Uh, some of my uh, my best friends and uh, and they're asking really good questions. So let's go to one of those uh, that that really kind of takes up from uh, from where, where Carlos ended. I think Kevin Carmichael says, uh, "Okay, panel, what's your prediction for where Mpox is going?" Um, we, you know, as Carlos said, this is not a new virus, but it's new in the numbers that we're seeing it. Is this going to be? Um, so, something that so, so let me, I, just want to remind, I just want to remind people uh, based on what Carlos said I think if anybody is interested in what we should be doing they should read House on Fire by yes. Bill Feige that is my favorite book I still use it I use it for not just infectious diseases but other viral diseases such as discrimination uh, lack of health equity these are things that we can address and we need to do them house by house and I think the principle here is that with MPX, what we're seeing is more like measles and less like polio or COVID in that if you have a case, you can easily do ring vaccination. There's too much stigma and too much of a, a network to really try to build on contact tracing. I mean, obviously I think if you can do contact tracing, that's a fair, fair game. I don't think that's gonna solve this problem. I think what's gonna solve this problem is getting everybody in high-risk groups to get vaccinated with at least two doses of intradermal vaccine, and that's going to slow this down. I don't think it's going to, I mean, again, who knows? You just don't see it really becoming a big problem in other populations. Doesn't mean we shouldn't care. It means we should redouble our efforts for that house on fire and make sure that we keep those individuals safe, um, destigmatize as much as possible, and make this not about their social networks, but about the way diseases like to travel in networks. So it well, sounds so, like so, you're so predicting Bonnie, so that Bonnie. this is going to be a problem that we're going to have, especially in the MSM community for, for a long time to come. Is this an, another virus that people are going to be living with? So I think so. I think so, Paul. And, and I think Bonnie just talked about House on Fire. So we, we have to say that this is Bill Fagy's book about the eradication of smallpox. And I think it's important to mention that I heard Mike Osterholm the other day say that, you know, after the 2001 bioterrorist attacks, 
he was in a meeting with with Secretary Tommy Thompson and and D.A. Henderson. If you people know, D.A. Henderson was really the, 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 the one of the major figures in the eradication of smallpox, together with Bill Peggy and others. And and as they were talking about getting rid of of of, of smallpox and you know have, having gotten rid of smallpox and stopping to vaccinate against against smallpox, D.A. Henderson said. Just wait, and this was 2001. He said, "Just wait another 20 years. Monkeypox in Central African countries will make a major resurgence among unvaccinated populations." So we're seeing that as we have not vaccinated for smallpox because we eradicated the disease, now we're seeing monkeypox emerge as a substitution, so to speak. So what do I think the future is? I think this is going to become endemic. I think the disease can go into animals. You know, lots of cases in New York City. What tells me that you know New York City has more rats than humans? What tells me that rodents in New York City are not already infected? So the future may be that we go back to vaccinate against smallpox, just like we did oh, in the past. So, Carlos, let me just let me interrupt because uh, there are several questions exactly on that topic. Uh, what's the interface between smallpox vaccination and MPX? Do people show benefit from having uh, had smallpox vaccination, and is where, where are we going with that? Uh, Carlos, you want to start with that? Well, well, the answer is, yeah, there's some protection. Back in, you know, I think Peter mentioned the 2003 outbreak related to prairie dogs. And there was one family in which the father had been in the military, was vaccinated. He had very mild disease. The mother had not been vaccinated. She has more significant disease. And the kids, one of the kids actually had encephalitis and ended up being very ill. And I can't remember if he, that kid died or not. So clearly, vaccination against smallpox. Uh, protects you in a significant way, may not prevent you from getting disease, but will prevent you from getting severe disease. The problem is that most of us, I guess, because maybe you, me, maybe Bonnie, I'm not outing on your age, but those of us that are older than 50 have been, were vaccinated, but we were vaccinated 50 years ago, right? I'm, so I'm older much, than 50. So how much protection <laughs> do we have right now? But it's a, it's a population under 50 that hasn't been vaccinated. Yeah. We stopped vaccinating in, 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 in 1972. Yeah. But Carlos, and we talked about this before. I can't remember if it was here or in our pre-panel, but um, but you don't get sterilizing immunity here. And it's very similar to say varicella, for example. You can reduce the severity, you can reduce the number of lesions, the viral load, and hopefully the infectivity. Right. But you're still gonna have some lesions. And I think uh, vaccination again is probably gonna really make a big dent in transmission for sure, but it's not going to keep this virus away. And I, I think the other issue is around our hand waving around equity. And yet we're looking at international global organizations, civil society organizations that still haven't been able to deliver on COVID. And we're, you know, we need to, I don't know how it, what, what it's going to take for the world health and COVAX and Gavi and all of the other uh, multinational or global groups to get together and really build a policy where they can actually come up with ways to finance. You know, the Pan American Health Organization has a revolving fund for vaccines that has been unparalleled. It was started by Ciro de Cuadros from Brazil. It's a way that you finance with um, with the heavier hitters, the, the or the countries with more money. You can actually fund more vaccines for. So, for example, Canada and the U.S. wind up contributing money so that Haiti can afford vaccines. And we've had this for 40 years now. and It's worked incredibly well. You can't do that outside of the Western Hemisphere because you don't have that underwriting. But somebody needs to really get involved and build a program. It's not for lack of trying or building white papers, but we need to take those white papers and put them into action because NEPA is out there. I mean, everything else is out. There's lots and lots of viruses that we 
will we can still see and and fortunately they can they've been extinguished or at least suppressed but they will come back with global globalization for sure so um uh, an interesting uh question from les squires um should we is is monkeypox is mpox uh, common enough that maybe people that are getting prep should be encouraged to have um, uh, the the vaccine. I would guess the answer is going to be yes. Is that the answer is absolutely. That's one of the highest risk yeah, groups yeah, that yeah. should get vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Peter, your thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. But I, I really want to give my perspective on equity too. Um, just from you know, it is really striking that it's so um, heavily uh, affecting communities of color and. You have to wonder if it's because we're not doing as good a job at diagnosis. So the people who we're seeing are the sickest of the sick or the obvious disseminated cases, because at some point you'd expect the other communities to come up. So it's really mystifying to me and it's really complex. And I worry about that, just like uh, Bonnie and Carlos are, um, because first of all, in vaccines, like right now it's pop-up clinics, you get a vaccine, nobody knows when it's coming. You take the day off of work and like you chase the vaccines all over the city to find it. Uh, people who are working, who can't take time off work, they're not going to be able to get a vaccine. Number two, uh, they're not, uh, the, they're declaring their sexuality by lining up in a public line to get the vaccine or even asking for the test. So I'm really worried about all those things coming back to your question of, is it going to go away? I, I think it's not going to go away, unfortunately. And yeah, so we have to focus back on vaccines, because at least it's a little bit more agnostic. It could be bundled with other things that might be disentangled more from somebody's sexual identity. And I assume stigma is going to be a much bigger well, issue. In yeah, some and you know, Paul, if you think about time. the way we dealt with HIV in the early days, um, I was at the CDC at the time, and we set up all of the seroprevalence studies here in, in Northern California. And a lot of what we did was really track people at risk and you build things in, you don't opt in, you opt out right, right. and you build things out in, in a destigmatized way. We built rapid testing and labor and delivery. It was impossible to get people to do it because the rate, the risk was not as high as in other populations, but in the end it became standard of care. Yeah, it yeah. took a lot of work, but if you make it, if you make it a standard approach for populations, in this case, we don't have enough vaccine right now, but we build it into the highest risk group right now and make it standard. It's not something that you're being um, you know, judged about. It's just part of your routine care. I think that's the easiest way we can build these things out. So just uh, for the future of these discussions, I, I would note that we're getting a ton of questions about MPOC. So clearly there's a lot of, uh, lot of concern, a lot of uh, uncertainty out there. So I think one of the things that we wanna keep Doing as we continue these uh, these discussions is is focus on that. So I'm, I'm I'm glad we're seeing the questions that we are. I haven't been seeing a lot of questions, um, uh, but I have seen one comment that we're not going to dig into today. I'm going to ask people not to comment on uh, the CDC restructuring and uh, and the politics of of all of that. Maybe we could devote a separate uh, panel to that at some point. Um, we won't have the answers anyway. Yeah, we won't have the answers uh, right away. Um, but um, uh, questions about polio. So another virus, and I have my little list here in front of me of, of viruses. We're not really going to talk about HIV anymore, I guess, today. But, uh, but uh, Bonnie, start us uh, talking about polio a little bit. It's been in the news. Um, again, this morning, we see, you know, kind of sampling sewers in hospitals in New York City. Um, what, what do we know about this current discussion? Yeah. 
Well, so basically in, um, so we know polio can be eradicated. It's only a natural reservoir is humans. Um, it is one of the enteroviruses um, and we have two great vaccines. Now in 1988, when the World Health Organization said we would eradicate polio, there were a lot of dollars put into that. And this is why I know we can do all these other diseases. It happened to have really big names with really big bucks to back up the ability to vaccinate literally every child in the world. So we've almost gotten rid of wild polio. There's only been 22 cases of wild polio in the world this year, six last year. But what we're seeing is we tried to de-escalate de the use of live vaccine viruses because the live vaccine virus it can uh, mutate and become um, neurovirulent again. It takes some time and circulation and replication, but it can become neurovirulent and it can cause cases. So this year so far, we've seen about a little over 200 and some cases of vaccine-derived polio in the world, in primarily in countries that have low vaccination rates and have are using still the live vaccine. We have not used the live vaccine in the U.S. since 1999 because it causes rarely causes polio. For example, there were 100 cases in the 90s. So out of 10 years, there were 100 cases due to the vaccine virus. So now we use only killed. So this is another example of equity, getting the vaccine, uh, getting the killed vaccine out to as many people as possible will eventually reduce circulation of the live virus. What happened in New York likely, we don't know for sure, but uh, this was a young 20-year-old man unvaccinated uh, who developed paralytic disease. I understand he's recovering or recovered. And um, ultimately I did talk to the New York state health officials and the, there was no cooperation from that community regarding tr contact tracing or any of that. But I asked them to start doing wastewater sewage testing. They were starting to do sewage testing because you can actually detect, it's an enteric virus, so you can detect it in wastewater. And they were able to at least build kind of like a Jon Snow cholera map of where the virus was sitting in the communities. And they finally found it primarily in one or two counties. Um, but it, this is a virus that rarely causes paralysis. So you see one paralytic case, you probably got 100 or 200 more people who've already been infected. Now, if you're vaccinated, you are not gonna get paralysis but you are gonna be infected and shed and spread to others. So vaccination truly, as Carlos said earlier, this is a disease that you can prevent, but you can't treat. So once you get it, you got it. And so, but if you are vaccinated, you are, I've only heard of one case um, in the last several years in decades of a, of a young adult who got disease after being fully vaccinated. This is a, somebody in her mid twenties who went to a country where there was still virus circulating so I think because of high force of infection, that person probably developed disease. And this is why we recommend that people who um, are going to countries where they're still using the live vaccine virus get uh, a, a booster dose of the killed vaccine. So I'm hoping that in that community where the 20 year old was infected, was paralyzed, the vaccination rate of two year olds was 60%. That is a setup for kids to get paralysis. And uh, in most of the country, we're not going to have a problem, but uh, it could be because we're now starting to see areas around the country where whole zip codes are just saying, we don't want to vaccinate our kids against anything anymore. This is, I think, a result of the COVID um, misinformation. And we're very concerned about that, not just for polio, but measles and whooping cough and other diseases. And, you know, Bonnie, and you, you know it better than, you know it better than anyone as a pediatrician. 
it's really, really hard. Many of those communities, many people say, well, I don't need to vaccinate against polio because the disease doesn't exist anymore, exactly. right? And, and we forget that that is not the right answer. And unfortunately, when you don't see something, you think it doesn't affect you. And I think it's a reminder that, that that's not the case. And, and, and in this same community, that, oh, go ahead, Peter. In yeah. the same community, Bonnie, and I know you've been more concerned about measles too. I, in, 19, in 2019, they had like 300 something cases of measles in the same community. So I think it is sort of like waiting to explode again with these communities and these micro um, unvaccinated communities. So is there is there uh, any this is the question from the from the uh, um, from the group out out listening to us uh, any role for polio boosters now for people that you know haven't been uh, haven't got their shot for you know this is a remarkable thing about polio if you've been vaccinated I've again I the only case I've ever heard of a vaccinated person getting paralytic disease was this one person who traveled to a heavily circulated area it's a great vaccine I I think. If you, we don't even vaccinate healthcare workers um, it, who are, well, we, I do get my vaccine, the kill vaccine to my lab workers because we're working with the actual live vaccine virus. Right. Um, but, you know, so you're working with it in, in your hand, but otherwise I think there's no reason to, I, I really think we just need to, as Carlos and Peter said, um, we need to remind people, it's like telling people, oh, you don't need to take prep anymore because you're, um, you know, your your viral load is, you know, undetectable. I mean, this doesn't make sense. Um, you, 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 we, so not, yeah. only one disease has been eliminated from the face of the earth from in humans, and that's smallpox. The rest are still out there waiting to jump on us. So we will stay tuned for the next virus that comes our way, I <laughs> guess, <don't>. unfortunately. <laughs> um, but uh, but, I, would, but getting... I would say, I would say, Paul, that we need a break, right? Yeah. Well, speaking of breaks, uh, <laughs> uh, we don't have any more, more time today, uh, but I think the, the panel has been, been great. Uh, Bonnie joining us from the news hour just last night. Uh, uh, everyone, everyone here has been uh, really great about volunteering to, to educate the public about these diseases that people are obviously very concerned about. This was our 25th uh, of this kind of dialogue as an organization. Uh, it's been remarkable. Again, thanks to Donna and Jose for uh, our, our staff for, uh, for putting these together. Uh, the organization does other um, uh, programs, webinars coming up on MPOX, and uh, you, you, you can just log on to our website, isusa.org, and, and get a sense of that. Um, the, the audience today, we pushed about 300 people. Uh, and again, uh, I, I wish I could go through the list because it's it's really a, a nice roster of, of leaders across the country. So uh, thanks for the participants. I think uh, we're likely to come back with another one of these dialogues if we can get Peter and Carlos and Bonnie to, uh, to agree. Uh, so far, they've been uh, they've been uh, they've been very willing and uh, and been great panelists. So again, thank you for your participation and thanks for your questions. I wish we could got we could have gotten to more, but uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. See you later.